Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome Podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. If you have worked your way over to this pod and you're still here 13 episodes in, you're here for the same reason I am. You see, I'd like to think that having done this as long as I have and having a modicum of success doing it, I have some things that I've learned that I feel like I can pass along that you might benefit from. More importantly, I'm on a mission myself, a mission of reinvention and transformation, both personally and professionally. I'm trying to transform my product and my business as well as myself mentally, physically, and emotionally. I am on a journey, and it's great to have so many of you here with me for it. Which brings me to this week's guest. Michael Franzese is a name that you may or may not know. Now, I've known Mike for many years, and when we first met, I can remember thinking this is one of the most compelling, intense, riveting individuals I have ever spoken to, and I still feel that way. And when it comes to transformation and reinvention, I'm not sure I've ever heard a story quite like his. There are exposés, books, TV shows, even films about Michael Franzese and the life he's lived. So it would be near impossible to adequately tell his story in 45 minutes, but... I have never personally known anybody like this or anybody who has lived this life. A life of crime. As a former mob boss who was one of the top earners ever, allegedly pulling in millions of dollars a week. Somebody who ultimately lived that life, went to prison for a decade, paid his debt to society, and despite having a contract or a hit on him, somehow was able to get out of that life, stay alive, find his faith, and begin a completely new, transformed existence altogether. Andy's here to tell a story and share what he's learned. If you have never listened to Michael Franzese before, I'm sure you'll agree you have never heard anything quite like this. Now, Michael, you and I have had several amazing conversations over the years, but it has been a minute or two. So quickly, bring me up to date. How are you and yours? And I know you're keeping busy, Mike. What have you been up to of late? Oh, you know, so many things have happened, uh, especially in the last year since we, uh, you know, were faced with that pandemic. Last year, I, I probably, uh, we had to postpone about 40 of my speaking dates all over the world. So we kind of pivoted. I started this YouTube channel that's really gotten off the ground in the last eight or nine months. I got a uh, television series in the works um, with a major company, Kennedy Marshall. I got a new book coming out at the, at the end of the summer. And uh, I'm now coaching, you know, I'm doing that for a living also. So just a lot of things happening, Jim. No complaints. I've been very fortunate in the last, uh, you know, couple of years. So I'm really glad to hear that. So Mike, do this for me. Like, as I mentioned, you and I have had a lot of conversations over the years, but this is a different format, a different platform. This is a reinvention project podcast. And believe it or not, there are probably some people listening right now that don't know you or your story. So if you don't mind, can you share what, how would you describe, Mike, your prior life? What did you do for a living? And what was that like? Well, you know, for those of you that don't know, uh, my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York uh, mafia Cousin Oster families back in the 60s. 
to make a very long story short, you know, when I was uh, 21 years old, I was proposed for membership in that life uh, by my father who had received a 50 year prison sentence. And um, in 1975, I was, uh, you know, formally inducted into the life. I took an oath and became a made man myself. And uh, I lived in that life for almost 25 years. And, uh, you know, had some success. They uh, elevated me to the position of Capo Regime, or captain. And, um, you know, what happened in 1984, I, and aside from that, I became a major target of law enforcement. I think I had 18 arrests during my time. I went to trial five times. I had two major racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani, who fortunately, after a several month trial, I was acquitted in, in federal court. I probably wouldn't be sitting here now. It was gonna give me a hundred years if I lost. And then uh, I decided to take a plea on another big case because I had uh, met a young woman who's now my wife of 36 years. I fell in love with her and decided that, you know, she was more important to me than, you know, than uh, that life. And I, I basically, um, you know, betrayed my oath in a way and that I stepped away. Didn't put anybody in prison, didn't hurt anybody, didn't go into any witness protection program, but uh, just wanted to change a life. And um, I did eight years in prison on the 10. Uh, that I accepted as a, a sentence. I had a $15 million restitution, paid that off. And, um, you know, I've been living out here ever since, just kind of changed my life, living out in Southern California and, um, you know, enjoying as, as best as I could. Hey, Mike, frankly, that's artful, that you could literally boil your story down to that response really is artful. That's masterful, given the life that you've lived. Let me ask you, you were actually pre-med at Hofstra. What happened there? And what happened when you said to your father, you wanted to get into the family business? Well, it, it wasn't that, Jim. My father received a 50-year prison sentence, and uh, I believed he was innocent of that uh, crime that he was convicted of. I believe it until his day. And, um, you know, Joe Colombo, who was the boss of our family at that time, he got very close to me, kind of took me under his wing. I started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. So I wasn't going to school. I was more or less hanging out with them. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys were telling me, hey, if you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. So I was very impacted by that. I went to see dad in Leavenworth. Uh, we were in the visiting room and told him I wasn't going to school. If I didn't help him out, he was going to die in there. And he made the decision. He said, look, if you're going to be on the street, then I want you to be on the street the right way. And that's when he proposed me for membership. So it really all started for me back in 1970, 71. All right. So fair enough, Mike. In terms of that, it, it, obviously for your father, but what attracted you to that life then? Was it the money? Was it the power? Or was it something else? You know, it, it was the money. I mean, I thought, you know, by being in that life, I would I would have, uh, you know, the power and the money to try to help my father get out of prison, you know, because we had a lot to do. We had a we had to look for the witnesses that we felt, you know, lied during the trial. We had to hire lawyers. We had to file appeals. And it's all costly. And my dad, I mean, he had some money when he went away, but he spent a ton of money on attorneys. He went to trial, I think, four times. So it was very costly for him also. So, you know, I was it was pretty much on my shoulders. And I just wanted to pick up the ball and, and try to do the best I could to get him out. So, yeah, it was the money and the power that uh, attracted me at that time. So, Mike, frankly, we're going to talk about the transition, the transformation, the reinvention. But I want to make sure that the listeners really understand what that life was like. For instance, the initiation, 1975. What happened at your initiation? What do you remember about that night? Well, you know, you got to prove yourself, Jim. So I was in kind of a re recruit period for about two years. And um, then I got the call. It was Halloween night, 1975, when uh, I was told to be at a certain place at a certain time. 
It was close to midnight. It was at a, a catering hall. Actually, Anthony Colombo, Joe Colombo's son, had a catering hall in Brooklyn. I was told to be there. And um, there were six of us that night that were inducted into the family. And it was, you know, it was a very solemn ceremony. It was a dimly lit room late at night. They wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. We walked into the room individually and the boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration. The underboss and the consigliere were to his left and right. And then all the copper regimes or captains were alongside of them. We had about 15 in our family at that point. I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my fingers, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. And I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, a Catholic altar card, put it in my hands, lit it aflame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. And he said, do you accept? And I said, yes, I do. And uh, that's the oath. That's how it started for me. When you come into the life, you come in as a soldier, and that's your, your first you know, official ranking. And uh, that's how my life started. So are you stressed out? Listen, don't let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. And I'm talking to all of you, whether you're an elite athlete or somebody just like me, trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can help. Theragun is an absolutely amazing product. Theragun is a handheld percussive therapy device which releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. And you want to talk about some amazing technology. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets right to the source of the pain by releasing tension using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. So whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out, an injury, or just the stresses of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. Take my word for it. Or... Take the word of 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid. Also, elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, and hundreds of thousands of customers just like me. I want you to try this. Try Theragun for 30 days starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com reinvention right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com reinvention. Theragun. Dot com slash reinvention. So, Mike, you rose through the ranks quickly. I mean, you were very, very, very smart, and you had lots of ideas. And as you mentioned, you were a capo. What does that mean exactly, and what was your exact role in the business at that point? Well, what happened, Jim, I kind of, uh, you know, you kind of separate yourself in that life. There's guys that are more gangster, you know, and they do some of the heavy work. And then there's guys that are more racketeers that, like myself, that, you know, had a business mind and were looking to bring money into the family. And don't get me wrong, you, you have to be both when you're a racketeer. But for the most part, you know, you're relied upon to, uh, to support the family, bring in money, you know, bring in new deals. And I kind of uh, separated myself in that regard. And I went on to make a very significant amount of money. So in 1980, the boss of my family, uh, Carmine Persico, who uh, he was indicted and convicted on the commission case by Giuliani. He died in prison two years ago. I got a hundred year sentence. But he said to me, Mike, you're doing a great job for the family. And he elevated me to the position of Capo Regime. And from 1980 until about 95, when I consider myself formally removed from that life, I operated in that capacity. And that's a, that's a high position. You know, you have a 
you have a lot of power when you have that. You have men underneath you that uh, you control and you're kind of a street boss to them. You answer only to the boss at that point. So uh, it was a you know, position of authority. Mike, how many did you have underneath you? I had about 15 soldiers underneath me, but I had a big crew of associates, you know, guys that were around me that weren't made guys, but that were part of my crew. Gosh, I probably had another, you know, 50 of those. Uh, you know, you just, you accumulate a lot of guys along the way. And then you were one of the highest earners in the history of the business. In your prime, Mike, how much money were you making for the, for the family? Well, you know, I fell across a pretty good deal that I was able to, uh, to take to a to, to very high level. And basically, um, I, I um, devised a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. And I ran that operation for about eight years, along with another fella. And at the height of our operation, we were selling about 50, uh, about half a billion gallons of gas a month. And we were taking down 20 to 30 cents a gallon. We were bringing in between eight and $10 million a week. Eight to ten million per week. Yes. So, Mike, I mean, I hate I hate asking questions about how much did this cost or how much do you have, but how much of that went to you in your peak earning years? How much money were you making yourself? Well, you know, I, it's a, it's always a loaded question for me, but I was making a lot. You know, I mean, look, we had that eight to ten million. That was the gross, and I, you know, I took care of the family, and obviously we had expenses, but. Uh, I put a couple of million a month away at that time, for sure. Hmm. So when you talk about the life, Mike, for instance, your best friend, somebody that you love dearly, violated the code at one point. At one point. What did he do and what happened to him? Well, yeah, he got in trouble. Uh, he was my partner in the gas business, and he got in trouble on an unrelated case. And, um, you know, he decided to turn informant. The government was really, they wanted me. You know, they had tried me several times and uh, without any luck, I was acquitted, uh, you know, four times prior. So uh, they made him a deal. They said, look, you turn over Michael, you testify against him and we'll cut you loose. And basically that's what happened. Um, you know, so he, uh, he testified against me or he made a deal to testify against me. I didn't allow him to because I took a plea prior to that. But, uh, you know, he got a sweet sentence and uh, he did, I think, two years in prison. Then he got out. And unfortunately, he... He left uh, New York, went into Texas, went back into the gas business with his whole family and ended up getting indicted again. And I believe he got 20 years. I mean, him and, and some of his family members. So it didn't end up good for him. And he's now passed away. You know, honestly, Mike, actually, I, I, that, that was not even the story that I was getting at. I was talking about, and that's really interesting. I was getting at, didn't you have a friend who cheated on a wife? And was it not with a family member of yours? Was there? Yeah. Yeah, Jim, that was another situation. It was a guy that was very, very close to me. He was like a brother to me. And he was married. As a matter of fact, I baptized his, uh, you know, one of his children. And we found out later on that he was having an affair with my younger sister. And in that life, Jim, that's, that's no, no, you can't do that. That's, that's one of the things you're told. You never violated a, another maid guy's wife, sister, mother, girlfriend, you know, none of that. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it was true and I couldn't save him, you know, and, and they ended up killing him. So Wall Street has been lying to you for years, saying the 7% is a good return on our stocks. It's just not. They also want you to believe that trading is so complex that you need a financial advisor 
also not true. Real people are making 30, 50, even 100% a year on their money trading stocks, even when the market is tough. Carnivore Trading is an anonymous team of elite Wall Street strategists. They are legends among Wall Street heavy hitters, and now they've gone a bit rogue. They're allowing everyday folks like us to see and mirror their explosive trades. Does that sound too good to be true? Well, Carnivore will let you see the trades they're making right now for free. Go to GetOurTrades.com, use the promo code ROAM, and get two weeks for free. And if you do join, Carnivore guarantees you'll get five times your subscription fee or double your money back. This is an amazing proposition. So go to GetOurTrades.com, promo code ROME. That's GetOurTrades.com, promo code R-O-M-E. See website for guaranteed terms and conditions. Past performance, not a guarantee of future earnings. The point that I'm trying to make here, Mike, this is not... This is not a movie. I mean, this was the life, and you were living this life. Ultimately, you went to federal prison. So, again, and you, you did mention this. How long were you away, and what were the charges? I ultimately pled guilty to racketeering. It was a racketeering charge. And the underlying act was defrauding the government out of tax. And um, I, got a, uh, I agreed to a 10-year prison sentence and a $15 million restitution, I think $5 million in forfeiture, something, something close to that. And I did eight years, which was the maximum on the 10 with good time. So, Mike, how did you approach life on the inside? Like, what was that like? For instance, were you in danger on the inside? Or frankly, were you kind of revered on the inside? You know, you got to understand, I visited my father for so many years. I mean, I knew at some point in time I was going to do time in prison. So it wasn't it wasn't foreign to me. Uh, but still, when you get in there, you know, you have to adjust, especially with me. It was, I mean, I had been locked up a few times and, you know, spent a couple of days in jail, but nothing, uh, you know, like a prison sentence. But, you know, I was I was kind of revered in there, you know, because I had a reputation. I had a lot of publicity in New York, so people knew who I was. Um, but when I walked away from the life, then, you know, the feds came in and said, Francis, there's a contract on your life. You know, uh, you know, they were trying to get me to go into the witness protection program. And I didn't want any part of that. I wasn't looking to hurt anybody, Jim. I just wanted out of the life. So the government thought that I was ripe, you know, to become a witness. So they, they, uh, they did me kind of dirty in there. They kept me in lockdown for quite some time. They put me on what they call diesel therapy where they ship you from one prison to another across the United States. So you never get comfortable anywhere. It's hard to get visits. So they really gave me the business for a while until they finally realized, okay, you know, there's nothing happening with this guy. But I spent uh, almost three years in lockdown in solitary. And that was rough, Jim, I'll be honest with you. And I spent uh, probably about six months in diesel therapy, just on the road, getting moved around a lot. So you know, they made uh, they made some of the time really hard for me. Mike, fine. Just one more thought about that. How did you get through the three years in lockdown? What did you do? Well, you know, I read a lot. For me, it was uh, you know a time where I strengthened my faith. I mean, I, I I spent a lot of time reading you know Bible and and anything that I can get my hands on. My wife sent me in over four hundred books and. Uh, you know, you just try to bide the time best you could and, you know, just look for that release date. You got to live for that. And I live for a phone call and a visit. That's all I cared about. You know, give me the phone and let me get my visits. And and that was it. You know, it's it's you know, I, I learned through that process, uh, Jim, we weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social. And at night, you know, a lot of times, you know, a lot of the guys that just handled it differently. You heard a lot of screams, a lot of moaning and groaning. I mean, it's, it's a tough deal to be in solitary. 
Mike, I really appreciate you resetting your story so our listeners understand that we could get to this point to pivot to talk about your transformation and your reinvention. Mike, when did you first begin to question the life? You know, I had an incident. I mean, look, you start to see, you know, as years go by and as things happen, you start to see that um, it's not what it's really, you know, supposed to be. It's supposed to be a life of honor, you know, a life of respect. And in some ways it is, but I saw a lot of things happen that weren't exactly that way. You know, I saw guys get killed for reasons that they shouldn't have got killed for, you know, money and, you know, there's a lot of politics, there's backstabbing, I guess it's like anything else, but the consequences in that life are a lot more serious, you know. But, you know, I had an incident where um, my dad was out on parole. And I mean, I could really get into the details, but um, he betrayed me in a way, Jim. And it really stuck with me, you know, it made me realize I said, wow, you know, if, if this life can separate father and son, who you got to understand, I love my dad, he was my idol. You know, and I worked hard for years to try to get him out of prison. I did get him out of prison on parole. He kept going back because he would keep violating. But I worked hard to get him out. And we were successful in that way. But I said to myself, man, if this life can separate father and son, then what do we really have here? And I just kept it in the back of my mind. I didn't say anything, but, uh, you know, it had an impact on me. And then, you know, two years later, I meet this young girl and uh, I fall in love with her. And she was 20 years old. And I saw what the life had done to my family. Now, you got to understand, my family, meeting my mother, father, brothers, and sisters, it, it destroyed our family. I mean, absolutely destroyed it in so many ways. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to be with this girl, I'm not going to marry her, stay in this life, and destroy another family. So I had to make a decision at that point, and I decided to, to try to walk away. And, uh, you know, it's not normally done. You don't walk away from that life when you take the oath, it's forever. But, um, you know, I did the best I could. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, fortunately, I made it out. And it's been, you know, I had some challenges, especially when I got out of prison. You know, people looking for me and, you know, my father and I didn't talk for about 10 years. And the feds told me that, you know, the contract on my life, that my father went along with it. You know, I mean, I, I had to deal with a lot of stuff. But uh, fortunately, I've been very blessed, very fortunate. And uh, I'm still here all these years later. Yeah, it's amazing. Mike, like, for instance, you can't just decide I'm going to leave the life and then leave the life. Exactly. How did you do that? And in terms of that contract on your life, I mean, how does that work? Does that, did you outlive everybody at that time or does that just get passed down? Like, where does that stand? Yeah. Let, let me tell you <clears throat> what I think, Jim. I mean, obviously I'm a person of faith and I believe God had a different uh, purpose for me. And I think that's, that's held true over the last 25 years, but you got to understand this. I knew that life intimately well. I mean, I was a higher up and I saw a lot in my, you know, 25 years there. So I knew exactly what the guys would do and I knew what they wouldn't do. So what do I do? I changed my entire lifestyle. I move out of New York. I would have never made it in New York. No way. There was too many guys there and, and it was too easy to make a mistake in New York. So I leave New York. I move out to California. I'm out on the West Coast. I changed my whole lifestyle, meaning you know, I didn't go to nightclubs, you know, I know who goes in nightclubs, I know who hangs out there, I'm a pretty well known guy, you know, I walk out the door, somebody makes a phone call to New York, they want to be a hero, I go into the parking lot, boom, I'm gone. I didn't go to the same restaurant every Tuesday night, you know, a Wednesday night. So if anybody was watching me, they'd know where to get me. I didn't walk my dog, you know, every morning at seven o'clock, because this is what happens, you know, guys look at patterns in your life, and they figure out, you know, what the best time to make a move. So, 
you know, I was very, very disciplined in that because I never sold, sold my former associates short. Wouldn't do that. So, uh, and yeah, you know, in the long run, I just outlasted everybody. And what happened, Jim, the feds played me dirty. They would put my name on the witness list of trials that were going on in New York. So even though I was sending messages back and telling my father, hey, I'm not going to testify. I'm not going to hurt anybody. Nobody believed me because nobody really walks away from that life unless they join with the government. So nobody believed me. That's when I had, you know, a lot of heat on me. But then these trials come up. I don't show up. And then, you know, I had done five years on my, on my uh, uh, sentence. I was out for 13 months, a bad 13 months, tough, mo tough months for me. But I violated my parole. The feds put me back in prison. So now everybody's saying, hey, if this guy's going to hurt anybody, why would they put him back in prison? So the, things kind of got a little calmer for me. And then, uh, yeah, I did outlast everybody. I mean, everybody I know in that life is either dead or in prison for the rest of their life. Most of them are dead. And then, you know, the new guys there now, they don't have it in for me. But I, I can tell you this, you know, I tell everybody all the time, I can't go back to New York and say, hey, guys, I'm moving back into the neighborhood. You know, I mean, I probably wouldn't last 48 hours. But, uh, you know, I believe in God, but he doesn't tell you to be stupid. You got to use your head. So, you know, I, I, uh, I still have my ear to the wall and, you know, I know what's going on as best as I could. And, you know, for the most part, the heat is off of me and, and uh, you know, we'll see how long it lasts. I mean, I just hit 70. So, so far, so far, I'm okay. Wow. Michael, I mean, but you've been back to New York, right? I've been back there. Yeah. I mean, I don't advertise when I go back there. Sure. Yes. Cause I, have, I have two daughters back there. I have family back there. So, yeah, I do go back. So witness protection was absolutely an option. Why did you not accept that? Because, I, first of all, you got to change your lifestyle. You can't be in contact with anybody. And, and you know, Jim, it, it would have shown that I was doing something wrong. And I wasn't doing something wrong. I think I left the, the life for the right reasons. And see, what people don't understand, Jim, I don't know any member, I mean, any family of every, any member of that life whose family hasn't been totally devastated. I mean, devastated, including my own. Now, not my wife and kids, but my brothers and sisters, mother and father. I mean, my father spends 40 years out of the last years of his life in prison. During that time, all of his sisters that he had passed away, all of his brothers, he was the last one remaining. My mother spent th 33 years without her husband. At the end of her life, she died in 2012. Her, her relationship with my father can only be described as ugly because she blamed my dad for everything that went wrong in her life, and rightfully so. My brother, drug addict for 25 years, he got himself in trouble, went into the witness protection program, cooperated with the feds, and testified against my father, a son testifying against the father. Hmm. You know, and, uh, and my two sisters, my two younger sisters, one died of an overdose of drugs. The other one died of cancer at a very young age, and she wasn't in her right mind. So devastation in every family of every member of that life that I know in some way had the same fate. So any lifestyle that does that, if you intentionally get involved in it and have a family, there's something wrong with you. You know, and I, I found out, you know, fortunately in time to where I didn't, you know, cause that devastation to my family, even though, look, I was away for eight years and they, they went through a lot, you know, because of my relationship and um, my involvement in that life. But at least I was able to, uh, you know, to save them the real agony. So, Mike, finally, before I ask you about your transformation, when you talk about the life, like, I mean, you just said you saw some pretty terrible things. I would imagine, Mike, maybe back in the day, you probably did a few terrible things. 
What do you do with that in terms of your reinvention, your transformation? What do you do with those things? And how do you live with and manage those things? How did you process that part of it? You know, Jen, that's, that's a good question. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, uh, there were things that I did in that life that certainly bothered me and troubled me, but I got to take responsibility for it because I did it anyway. And, you know, and, and, I wanted to be a good soldier. I wanted my dad to be proud of me. I wanted to, you know, to be the best possible mob guy I could be. And when I had to do things that were distasteful for me, I'll use that word, I kind of stepped out of myself and, um, you know, and just did what I had to do. And, you know, it's tough to live with. I mean, you know, my wife tells me at times that, you know, I'm fighting in my sleep and this is, you know, how many years later. So things do come out. But, you know, I have to say this, you know, I am a person of faith and I have to believe that, you know, that my faith is real. I'm a Christian. And, you know, if we are sincerely sorry for our sins, we're forgiven. And, and I really am. I mean, I, I am sorry for the things that I did in my life. And, you know, I've tried to, I don't say make up for it because you can't make up for what's done. What's done is done. But I tried to lead a, a better life and be a positive influence on people uh, for the last 25 years. And, and hopefully you know, that's recognized by, by people out there. You know, Mike, what's ironic, you and I have been having conversations like this over the years for a long, long time. And I think what's ironic, I mean, this podcast is about reinvention and I'm really actually obsessed with it in myself and in others. Ironically, again, you're one of the all-time examples of reinvention. I mean, from mob boss to inspirational and motivational speaker, business coach, I mean, a crazy, crazy career arc. How in the world did you approach and manage your personal and professional reinvention? How did you do that? You know, it just it's just something that happened. I mean, when I got out of jail, you know, you got to understand I'm out in California. I was like a fish out of water, uh, you know, a totally different lifestyle. Not that I didn't understand legitimate business because I had legitimate business. I had a head for it. You know, what separated me from a lot of guys is that I knew how to use my former life to benefit me in business. And I did. But, you know, now that life is gone and I've got to support my family. So fortunately, I had a head for business. And then, you know, things just happen. It, it, it evolved. I mean, when I got out of prison, let me tell you how I got out and how yes. this whole speaking career happened. Sure. I was in the hold and uh, I'm in a hold 29 months and seven days. You know, you count those days. And uh, every day I would write the warden because they had me in there for administrative detention. They made believe it was for my own protection. But I'm out in Lompoc, California. There was no wise guys out there. They could have put me on the yard, but they were giving me the business. Every day I write the warden. I had a yellow pad and a pencil. Warden, let me out of here. I can make it on this yard. There's no wise guys. Every day for 29 months and seven days. Finally, a, a correctional officer comes down on the 29 month and seventh day and he says, the warden wants to see you. I said, great. I never met the guy. I didn't know who he was. Nobody comes down to the hole, right? So he takes me up there. And uh, I'll never forget, Jim, as I, as I approach his door, he just looks at me and he walks over to his file cabinet. He pulls it open and there's all my letters. And he says to me, Francis, you're killing me with these letters every single day because he had to save them, right? I guess it's a policy. But I said, hey, Warden, I got a lot of time on my hands. I may as well write you. What am I going to do, you know? So he looks at me and he says, look, you got six months left on your sentence. He said, if you thought you were going to get hurt or get killed, you wouldn't ask to go out on the yard. You're not going to escape. You're not a dummy. He says, I'm going to let you out of here. But he said, however, you're going to have to sign a waiver. If anything happens to you on the yard, you're not going to have, your family's not going to sue the Bureau of Prisons the whole bit. I said, hey, give me anything. I'll sign it. Right. I signed a waiver. I'm out on the yard. 
Beautiful day in uh, Lompoc, California. I got a Sony Walkman. You know, a lot of these young people, they don't know what that is. I'm listening to Billy Joel and I'm walking the track. I get halfway around the track and I hear over the loudspeaker, Francis, back to the office, the warden's office. Now, that was bad news. I was what you call a central monitoring inmate, meaning any movement on my part had to be approved by the Bureau of Prisons in Washington. So I figured... You know, he's told them they, that he let me out and they were going to lock me down again. So I'm preparing my whole speech. I get to the warden's office and as I approach it, I see two guys in suits. Now, I don't need to see a badge. I see the suit and the shoes. I knew exactly who they were. They were FBI. So I turn around and start to walk away because I knew they were going to tell me, oh, yeah, we got to cooperate and a whole bit. And I said, guys, leave me alone. I'm not cooperating. I got six months to go. I'll finish up my sentence in a hole and I'll go home. Francis, get back here. And they said, we got to talk to you. Now I'm starting to think, hey, maybe something happened with my family. So I go back in the office. And I said, what do you guys want? And they said, look, you claim you turned your life around. We're going to give you an opportunity to prove it. I said, what do you mean? They said, how long have you been down? I said, I've been down eight years. You guys know that. You put me here. They said, well, Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, NHL are getting together to do an anti-gambling video. We want you to participate, right? I said, you guys have been telling me I'm going to get killed for the last 10 years. Now you want me to participate in the video? I said, it's got to be a setup, right? So they said, no, it's the truth. You know, we want you to participate. Who knows better than you what's going on in sports? Because I had about 13 bookmakers working for me at the time. We had a lot of athletes and people in the, you know, in the games that were gambling with us. So I said, guys, I don't do videos. I'll finish up my time. They said, look, if you do this, we're going to sweeten up the pot for you. We're taking you out of here for three days. <clears throat> excuse me, we're filming this in Chicago. We're going to put you up in a nice hotel. We're going to, you're going to have a king size bed, all the room service, go take a dip in a pool. You know, who's better than you for three days. And Jim, I'll never forget. It. I said, Hey guys, I'll tell you what, I've been down eight years. You get my wife in that room with me. I'll make a video on anything that you want. Oh man. Mike. Believe me, I meant wow. it. You know, this is a long time. Wow. And they left and they said, well, we'll try. As it turns out, you may remember we had an earthquake in uh, California just at that time. And they were going to take me out on a Monday. They couldn't take me out, right? But since I agreed to do it, uh, Major League Baseball and the NBA, NBA Productions actually came into the prison and they filmed my portion of the video in there. And I told them straight, look, this is, this is how we put the athletes in trouble and this is how it went down. And, you know, I told them straight just how it happened. And they spent a lot of money on this. I think all the leagues got together, put about a quarter of a million bucks together and, uh, you know, they had uh, Pete Rose in there and Arch Sleister and all this stuff. And Greg Gumble was EMC. And I did my part. Well, I get out six months later and uh, they approach me again, Major League Baseball and the NBA. And they show me the video and they featured me prominently from start to finish. And they said, Mike, we want you to take this uh, to another level. And we want you to come to speak to our players because gambling is a real issue for us. That's how I started speaking, Jim. In 1996, I did all the NBA rookies. I spoke to every major league baseball team in spring training, all the minor leagues, and I've been doing it ever since. I mean, that's how I started speaking. And then it just evolved and it caught on. And, you know, I became a, a public speaker over the last 25 years. Right. In every and that, different form. No, and that's how you and I met. And you and I did TV shows. And I can remember, Mike, honestly, when I first met you and we had these conversations, I thought to myself, I've spoken to so many riveting people, compelling people, but I had never, ever, ever spoken to anybody quite like you before. And I was just so riveted by the conversation. So when you tour the country now, I know you still talk about these types of things. Who do you speak to now? And what else do you talk about? You know, Jim, I've been really all over the world now, and I speak in, in different business forums. I do a lot of ministry work, meaning I go into prisons. I speak to a lot of juvenile delinquents. 
I still speak on sports. I speak in, I mean, you know, a lot of people just want to hear my story. It's, it's a redemption story that they're interested, even in a business forum. It's amazing that, you know, I'll talk about certain fraudulent things, how to detect it, how to watch out for it. I'll talk about, you know, certain things. I, I tell people, look, business is business. Whether you're doing it on the street or you're doing it legally, you still have to have the right formula to do it correctly. And you got to have a business mind. And so I, I kind of tell them, you know, things that I learned on the street that helped me in business later on. And, uh, you know, but again, even with that, they all want to hear the redemption story, no matter where I go. I've been to places sometimes four or five, six times. And I tell them, I said, look, you know, I've, I've been here before, you know, can I change the story up a little bit? Well, Michael, there's new people in the audience that haven't heard you before. We want you to tell your story. I get that all the time. Like it never gets old. I, I don't get it myself, but look, I enjoy it. You know, I love, uh, you know, having an impact on people and, uh, you know, the, the comments and then the emails that I get show that, you know, there's value in what I do. So I just continue doing it. Hey, Mike, I got to own it. I mean, shoot, I started this very interview the exact same way. Like, hey, Mike, you and I have talked about this before and, and people know this, but but there are some new people that don't. Really quickly before you go, and I so appreciate getting caught up in the time. So let me take a shot at something that you and I haven't talked about. Like, for instance... Like, what, what would you say to somebody, Mike? Let me take a shot at this. Somebody comes to you because you do coach. You coach business. You coach leadership. Somebody comes to you and says, Mike, I lost my edge. I lost my spark. I've lost my fire. I'm sick of hitting the alarm clock every single morning. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I'm 40-something. I'm 50. What do you tell that person? Well, you know, I try to get into a little bit of what's going on in their life at that point in time. I said, give me, you know, give me some details. Tell me what's going on. What has brought this to this point with you? And normally, you know, you get people, they, they normally know about me already. So there's, for some reason, they have a, 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 they're comfortable in speaking to me and they just lay it all out. And then from that point, I can tell them, okay, well, here's the issue and here's what you got to do. And here's how we're going to get started again. And, uh, you know, a lot of people tell me that they're feeling in business, you know, that they're having an issue. And I say, well, let's go back to your personal life, because your business life is a reflection of what your personal life is about. If your personal life is not in order, most of the time, your business is not going to be in order, too. So let's get into those details. And I just try to coach them all the way. And it's, uh, you know, it's been successful. And, you know, people have to have confidence in you. And when you've been there and done that, and I explained to them, look, this is how I came out of a bad situation, and I'm going to help you get out of it also. It has an impact, and they listen. And, uh, you know, we've been successful. But, you know, I always tell people this. I don't care how good I am, how good the next coach is. you got to have a real will and desire to help yourself. Because without that, nobody can coach you. you got to say, you know, and you, and you can't just say it, not just words. you got to say, no, I'm committed. I want to change the situation I'm in. I want to do better. And uh, once you made that commitment and it's real and we determine it's real, then I can help you. And it can't be hollow. You got to mean it. One last thought. You coach leadership. Mike, I'm curious, in your mind, what makes a great leader? Like what kind of an individual do you yourself want to follow? Well, remember this, Jim. You know, a lot of people are bosses and supervisors and managers and owners. But just because you're one of those, it doesn't mean you're a leader. Right. A leader is only a leader when people want to follow him or her. And I think, you know, first of all, you got to be honest with them. They got to trust you. They got to have confidence in you. And you got to instill that in them. And it's just, you know, the way you carry yourself, the way you speak to them, you know, your, your characteristics. Uh, I, I think people recognize that. And, um, and I always tell them that, you know, just because somebody is over you and has supervision over you, that doesn't mean that they're a real leader. 
It might be a boss. It might be a manager. But you're only a leader when people want to follow you. So, Michael, you've got a half a dozen books now, plus you coach, you speak, you tour, you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner. If the listeners want to reach out, at this point, people know where to find people on social media. But if they want to reach out or they want to bring you in to speak to their group, where can they find you and what is the best way for them to consume your content at this point? Well, Jim, let me, are you, are you in a hurry to go? We got a few no, more minutes. No, I, I'm, no, no, you take your time. I got nowhere to be. Okay. I wanted to say something. I'll tell you a little thing that happened to me. After I wrote my business book, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse, my publisher came to me and he said, Mike, we want you to write a book on politics, something I normally stay away from. But uh, I said, okay. And I was thinking about it, thinking about it. I actually wrote about five chapters. This was five years ago and uh, actually six years ago. And basically what I have determined in my life that our government is acting very Machiavellian. And Machiavelli was kind of the patron saint of the mob on the street. And I saw so many similarities and characteristics, you know, that were similar to the mob in our government. Um, And I started to write the book and I said, you know what, what am I doing this for? I said, I live a pretty good life now. I don't need people getting mad at me. So I went back to my publisher. I said, I'm not going to write the book. I gave him back the advance and that was it. In the last year, I just felt a real responsibility. I felt compelled to write this book. So um, I've written a book. It's going to com- come out at the end of the summer, maybe September. It's called A Mafia Democracy. And in that book, I show just how the government is acting so mob-like. This is not a gimmick. I, I get very specific. It's not Republican, Democrat. It's just right down the line. And the reason I wrote the book, Jim, I, I feel a responsibility now to enlighten people. And, and the main thing that I want them to do to come out of it after reading this book is to hold our public officials accountable. That's it. You know, today, you know, Jim, you know this in your own life. If you have a friend, a business partner, you know, son, daughter, wife that continuously lies to you, you're going to hold them accountable. You're not going to accept it. But today in government, you know, we let so many things go by and we say, oh, that's politics and that's the way it is. And we just shouldn't do that because it's detrimental to to, to everybody, to the country and to the people. And, you know, I, I feel a, a real responsibility for my children and grandchildren to enlighten them so they really understand, you know, what the purposes of government is and how we hold them accountable. So I just wanted to mention that because I, I, I want people to be aware of why I wrote the book, because I really felt compelled to, no other reason. And uh, like I said, it'll be out. It's called a Mafia Democracy. Um, I'm probably going to get dinged for the title, but uh, that's the way I see it. So that'll be out, like I said, August or September. But, you know, to be in touch with me, I mean, I have a big YouTube channel now. It's, I think, just at Michael Francis. I don't even know how you get on it. I guess you just put my name in and it comes up. And uh, michaelfrancis.com, that's, the, you know, my coaching site. My website is there. And I'm all over social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You know, you got to have those today. That's, that's the way you get yourself out there. So I'm pretty easy to find. Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, what a life. What a life. You turned 70. How was that? <laughs> you know, it's like I said, my, they threw me a surprise party. You know, my wife did. I don't know how she kept it a secret, but she did. And I got to tell you, I had so many friends that come out, even from back east, that I, that I was so glad to see. And it was just a great night. And uh, I, I got to tell you this, you know, my brother, who I hadn't seen for 14 years because, you know, he went into the program when he testified against my dad. My dad went back into prison and we've spoken, but I hadn't seen him, but she surprised me. He was at the party and it was like, you know, wow. I mean, it it almost knocked me out to see him after 14 years. And, you know, he's still my brother. And, you know, I, I, uh, 
I certainly forgive him for what he did. I understand, you know, he, he had a pretty tough life. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, how could you forgive him? But it's all about forgiveness in this world. You know, you got to be forgiving. But it was it was just a great night and a great time to spend with, you know, family, friends and, and my brother. Hey, Mike, do you think you can get me a good table at Watermark? I, I hate to say it. I still have not been. <laughs> I'm sure I could, Jim. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't want to ask after I just got 40 minutes of quality content from you, but I, I, it's not an easy restaurant to get into. I understand that you might know somebody there, so that'd be great. I may take you up on that. And you and I, we still need to break bread, but I, I appreciate this very, very much, Mike. I said, like, you and I have had so many conversations over the years, always amazing conversations, but I thought to myself, if I'm going to talk about reinvention in myself or anybody else, this is the ultimate story of reinvention. So, Mike, I do appreciate it very, very much. Thank you for that. Oh, you got it, Jim. And I will tell you this. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I've done, God only knows how many interviews I've done. And you are absolutely right on the top, one of the best, because you, you just you just know how to handle it. You know how to you know handle an interview. And so many people don't. I got to tell you that. But you're great. And I've always appreciated that. And it, yeah, it was too long since I last uh, spoke to you. So we, we're both out here in Orange County. We've got to try to get together. No, I, I'm available anytime. I want to make sure that I did not go to that well too often because uh, I appreciate the relationship and the friendship. And so I want to let that thing breathe a little bit, Mike. But I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you and I came together. Let's definitely get together because we are close. And I really do appreciate the, pra the praise, Mike. Thank you so much. Yes, and just know I'll always be available to you. Anytime you want me, you know, we'll make it happen. So just, just know that. And I appreciate that too, Mike. Thank you so much. All right, my friend. You take care. I want to thank Michael Francis for his time and for once again sharing his story. And I want to say I can see where some of you might be conflicted. I can see where you might not be able to reconcile what Mike has done in his former life. And I'm not here to glorify or sensationalize that life. I'm here to say Michael Franzis did pay his debt to society. He is accountable for whatever he may have done. And when he says there are things that he regrets and that he's sorry, I believe him. When he says he's found his faith and that's what guides him now, I believe that as well. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I will tell you, I think that Mike's story is incredible and that because of the life he has lived and the experiences he's had, he can help others. He wants to help others, and he has useful lessons and information to impart on life, business, and personal and professional development. And if you want to talk about somebody who's completely reinvented and transformed their life, it's Michael Francis. From mob boss to inmate to inspirational and motivational speaker, author, content creator, and yes, legitimate business owner. You want to talk about a career and life arc. That is an all-time reinvention and transformation if you ask me. If you want to reach out to Mike, I would encourage you to do so, and I know he'd look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, if you like what you're hearing, as always, please make sure you're subscribed, leave a review, and share any of the content that you think might benefit somebody else. And as always, I appreciate you all very much. Have an amazing week. Stay in the fight, and I will see you again next time right here on The Reinvention Project. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.